Well, um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my podcast today, and uh, I got like this, um, like writer's block, but like podcast block. I could not figure it out. Got all pumped up and ready, and I was like, man, I need to go record a podcast today. And uh, couldn't figure out what I wanted to do when I actually sat down. And part of that comes from a lack of preparation, to be honest with you. <laughs> so I'll be uh, a lot more planned out as we uh, as we move forward. But um, as I was sitting here, you know, I messaged in on a couple of these group me's that I'm on, asking for some podcast ideas. I uh, put a questionnaire out on Instagram, and uh, was looking through some notes, looking through some different trainings that I've had in the past. And uh, it dawned on me, I think what I want to talk about today is uh, what to expect for your first year or your first summer for door knocking. Um, When I look back on my first year of of door knocking, I was super scared. (laughs) I mean, if anybody knows me from when I was back in high school and back in... uh, uh, back in old Idaho, <laughs> anybody would say like, dude, there's no way that that kid guy, he, there's no way he'd go do summer sales. No way. And um, it was a tough decision for sure. Um, I was living in Idaho at the time, um, recently married. I was going to, actually, I don't know. I was not going to school yet, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um I was working an internet job. I was building some cell phone towers, internet towers, and uh, making okay money was not great. But for newlyweds, you know, we were just getting by, right? And uh, one of my buddies hit me up and was like, dude, you should check out the summer sales gig. It's pretty sweet. And I was like, no, <laughs> not a chance. And he's like, no, like, really, you should try and do it. It's uh, He did it one year before me, said he made good money. I was like, man, like, I just... It's just not for me. I don't want to drive out to Virginia. That's where we were going to go sell. I was not I was not going to go drive out to Virginia, of all places. But uh, somehow, that sales trick, they got me, man. And uh, so I signed the paperwork. Uh, it was in April when we signed. We canceled our lease early. We paid out early. And packed up our one car of our belongings. Put our dog in the back and drove out to Virginia. Um, mind you, we had everything that we owned at the time in that car with a dog in the back and that dog is a St. Bernard. So there was not much room for anything else. And we were packed like head to toe. I mean, we were stuffing stuff under my wife's feet, um, in the back windows, glove box, any compartment, any place that had space, no longer had space. I mean, it came down to taking like towels or whatever and just stuffing them everywhere. Because uh, part of it was we did not have any money to spend on anything when we got there. Um, it was a miracle that that freaking car lasted us even to Virginia at the very, you know, best. Um, but it got us through the whole summer too and back home. Crazy. Um, I think we had a 2003, 2002... Volkswagen Jetta and it was a car that I bought for my grandpa for a thousand bucks and that's what we took out there um, the day that we got into Virginia I had $87 to my name 87 bucks and uh, so 
come hell or high water, I had to go make money. And uh, I guess that was kind of the the force behind starting to sell. Um, and the reason why I started selling is because I didn't have any money. And I'm the sole provider, right? I'm the protector of the family. She didn't have a job while we were out there. Um, partly because it's really hard to find those part-time jobs for three or four months. But a big reason was we had agreed that she would help me prepare meals, um, just make sure everything at home was taken care of. So the only thing I had to focus on was the selling aspect. I practiced and practiced and practiced our, uh, our little pitch over and over and over. I knew it backwards, forwards, upside down. Um, it reminds me of uh, the Forrest Gump movie. Sometimes it was raining up. Man, I knew that thing down to a T. Knew where every period was, every every question mark, every comma. And uh, that was enough to just get me started. Um, my first day out, um, <laughs> thinking back, it was so funny. They dropped me off in an area. It was townhomes. Um, and the rule was the car driver was not allowed to leave until they saw the rep go and knock their first door. So I stayed and or he stayed and watched me go knock my first door. And oh my gosh, um, my heart was going a thousand miles an hour. I could feel it beating out of my chest. I could feel it in my neck. Pretty sure you could look down and see out of my jacket. My jacket was just flapping in the wind because it was beating so hard. I was so scared. Um, but I knocked on the door. The lady came out. I knew my pitch so well, right, that I was telling you. Um, but it all went out the window, all of it. Um, I think I got out the words like, Hey, my name's Kate. I'm with XYZ pest control company. And that was it. I had no idea where else to go. And so I basically was just like, have a good day. And I walked off and, um, I just grinded that whole day long. Um, knocked every door I could possibly knock. Um, I was doing like 250 doors a day or 300 doors a day, which sounds like it's a good thing and I'm hitting a lot of doors, but it wasn't at the time, but I didn't know, wasn't trained right quite yet. Um, anyway, but by some miracle that day, I got my first sale and it was hilarious. I, I knocked on this lady's door, um, African-American and she's so funny, came out and I told her and, you know, gave her the spiel, um, by the probably fifth or 10th door or so I, I was I was okay. The butterflies had gone away. Those pregame jitters had gone away. And I was able to just kind of put my head down and go. And uh, she came out, pitched her. And uh, she went and talked to her mom. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And I said, cool. And um, actually, I didn't say cool. What I said was, really? <laughs> I had knocked for so long and, and uh, so many doors that by the time someone actually was interested, I, was, I couldn't believe it. And uh, so I said, really? She goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, sweet. Um, and the coolest thing, I just told her, I was, I was like, Hey, this is my first day. It's my first sale of ever. Um, so it was, it's pretty cool. So I said, Hey, I don't know how to go through the, all the paperwork yet, how to collect the uh, credit card info. I had no idea. So I said, Hey, just give me a sec. Let me call my manager. So I called him. I said, Hey man, um, this is, I got my first sale. Help me walk through the paperwork with her. Um, I'm, I'm trying not to lose the sale. So don't make it come off. Like I'm, you know, some sort of dweeb or whatever. So I uh, put my my phone on speaker and uh, he starts going through the contract and the agreement and uh, he goes, yeah, I just got to forgive him. It's his first day. You know, he's kind of new at this. And uh, anyway, she just, you can kind of see her, 
her uh, countenance started changing a little bit. Like, oh, maybe this guy's not legit. Maybe this is weird. But anyway, all worked out. Um, she got serviced either that same day or the next day. And um, anyway, it was crazy. Crazy first day. Uh, second day I went out. I think I got a sale every single day for like my first week, um, which is great. Um, but again, I was knocking 250, 300 doors a day. So I was bound to run into somebody who's like, oh, dude, I got cockroaches, man. Yeah, we were waiting for somebody to come by. We're calling somebody tomorrow. This is perfect timing. Um, so a lot of them were probably just volume of doors hitting. I was bound to run into somebody. But um, it was great. It was really hard. The first two weeks are going to be brutal. That's what we call the uh, getting your, your teeth kicked in phase. Because it's brutal. No matter how much you prepare, no matter how good you think you are, you have no idea. None. No idea what your first summer is going to be like. You could have a million people tell you exactly their story and what it was going to be like. And it's not going to be anywhere near that. It's not going to be anything the same. Nothing even remotely close. You're going to get your teeth kicked in. Promise you. But the difference between people that go out their first summer and they either stay after their first two weeks or they go home within their first two weeks. It comes down to mental toughness and just grit. Uh, just having that mental fortitude, that mental toughness that you can stick it out and you can do hard things. Um, by the time I was done with uh, doing my first summer, um, I think I'd made like 30,000, 30, almost 40,000, some change, something like that. Um, and that was the most money I'd ever even tasted, especially in like a three or four months, you know, time frame. It was crazy because that's what me and my wife were making together combined, you know, before. So to have that in three or four months, it was like almost life changing. A couple of things I learned through my first summer that you'll learn on your own and you'll, you'll, uh, start to understand as you go. The number of doors you hit per day is not everything. It really comes down to the quality of the pitch, the quality of time that you spend at the door with that customer. You got to treat it like it's the last customer you're going to talk to all day. And if you do that and you work through going through objections, you go three or four objections deep, um, the number of sales will, will increase. Part of knocking that many doors a day too is I was just constantly knocking new doors all day long. Never went back and re-knocked. I wasn't thorough with my area at all. So something that you should definitely consider when you go out to area, uh, for your first two weeks, just, just go run. Just go hit as many doors as you can. Go get those couple sales under your belt. Get some cash flowing in, right? But once you've been doing that your first two weeks, uh, revamp the way you knock your, your area. So for me, I would start out at uh, 1 o'clock. That's when we start knocking. Um, that was when we started our, our second summer. We started knocking at 1 o'clock. Our first summer was brutal. And uh, I think anybody that knocked these old schedules, they're tough as nails. We basically did two-a-days. You'd start at 8 o'clock in the office. We'd do our meetings, whatnot. We'd go have lunch. Um, or now, sorry, back up. We'd go have our meetings. Um, we'd break off, go to area, be there by like 10-ish, something like that. Um, we'd knock till about one, then we'd go do lunch, um, then we were back on the doors no later than 2.33. And then you'd knock the rest of the day till night. So you're almost knocking two, you know, full days, essentially. And uh, that was brutal. 
Um, I just remember I, we'd be, you know, we'd crave every ounce of sleep we could get. We'd get to the McDonald's or the Chick-fil-A. We'd just crash. We'd eat our lunch, then we'd just crash. Plug all of our iPads in and our segues in, then just crash. Um, but fast forward to the second year, we changed and we started knocking from 1 o'clock till dark. And that was a game changer. Still the same, you know, number of knocking hours. So production didn't necessarily decrease. Um, but I think it definitely increased. The lack of, you know, that break in the middle I think was perfect. Um, you didn't have to restart your day, re-amp re, uh, yourself for for the, the next half of the day. You could just blow through the whole day. Um, so it made it a lot easier to stay motivated, stay disciplined, stay up on top of your, your game. But uh, yeah, so we'd start from 1 o'clock. Um, I would knock until about 4.30. Um, all new doors, about 4.35 when people start returning home from work. I would start back over at the very beginning of my area where I started. And then i just re-knock till about 7, um, give or take. And then I'd go hit a whole fresh area the last hour and a half, two hours of the day. And that is where all of my sales started jumping from one a day to three or four a day. And then anything after that from three to six, you know, a day, that's where it really came down to um, trusting the process, knowing your pitch, going through the objections, and really studying how to come across confident and competent to your customers and be the actual expert. That's when everything really started clicking. My second summer was pretty brutal too. Um, I was stepping off some guy's porch. I was out training, um, with one of my reps. And, uh, when I was stepping off the guy's porch, his concrete broke from under my foot. When I landed, um, it destroyed my ankle. I tore two of the three tendons that hold your ankle together. It was brutal. Um, it, it sucked a lot. I was driving a manual car. I still had my Jetta at the time and I had to have someone come out, someone else come out and drive it because I couldn't even push my, my clutch in with my foot is my left foot. And um, so I went to the doctor the next day and I was like, dude, there's no way I can have surgery. Like my whole family depends on my income right now. Like I have to knock. He's like, well, you can tough it out. Um, hopefully the tendons don't continue to tear more than they are. Um, and hopefully they'll put themselves back together the best they can. We'll put you in a boot for now. We'll tape you up and get at it. So they put me in the boot and uh, I just went knocking. And for me, efficiency was super, super key. In Virginia, the homes are spaced out fairly, fairly well apart. And a lot of them have stairs that go all the way up to the door. And so for me to hobble all the way up those steps and then walk, you know, 20 yards to the next house or 10 yards to the next house, for me, that felt like it was an eternity. So after the first day with my boot, I came back and I said, um, I told my manager, I said, hey, man. There's no way I can knock like this. I need to go get, you know, something that's closer homes, not as many steps. And so the only thing that was left were townhomes. I hated townhomes. Everybody did. And I don't know why. Um, but I hated them. And I was like, dude, there's, I guess it's a sink or swim moment. So he stuck me in some townhomes and, uh, I ended up having my best week of the summer that week. Um, call it, uh, you know, the poor me with my boot, if you want to. But um, I think I was a little bit more determined, you know, to make it count. Uh, just to make sure that if for whatever reason happened, the next couple weeks it got worse and I had to have surgery or whatnot. That at least I could have made up something during those weeks. Brutal, brutal summer. 
but a lot of these things all contribute to having this, you know, the calloused mind, the, uh, the discipline. Um, don't get me wrong. Like I definitely had my weak moments where I sat on the curb or whatever. Um, but I think it's a shame for some people to say that they never have weak moments because in reality, we all have our weak moments and, um, being able to recognize those and be able to prepare for those next time, I think is really important. So for example, if you are a person that struggles with being on your phone all the time and you have no idea how to stay focused because you're so freaking addicted to your phone, make it so impossible to get to your phone. So annoying that you just don't even want to do it. So I would turn my phone off I'd put it in a Ziploc bag and then I put it in my backpack. And I put it at like the bottom. And for me to open my backpack, go to the Ziploc, turn my phone on, like it was just such a hassle and it was so annoying that I was just like, you know what, screw it. I don't need it. So that's a really good way you can get around that if you're not as disciplined as other people. Um, but you'll, you'll figure out, you know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Um, side note story I didn't mention in my first summer. Um, I'm not going to use names. I'm not going to try and point anybody out because I want it to try and be pretty anonymous. But um, I had this family member or family members um, that totally were disbelieving. They There were relatives that had done summer cells with pest control, alarms or solar, and they failed. Or they did okay. And so they basically put it down saying that you shouldn't do it. It's not worth it. Like you have to drive out to Virginia and then come back. You got to pay for things. You have a wife. And they basically just harped on it and they hated on it. Um, Very little support with that. So there was a huge driving factor in my first summer to prove all of them wrong. But the biggest thing that completely lit my fire was one of them said, hey, I'll tell you what, if you don't make enough money this summer, don't worry. I will pay to get you home. You know how freaking embarrassing and I'm at a loss for words. It was so frustrating. It was so humiliating. He belittled me, if that's the right word. Um, It hurt, man. And so for me to have all of those things driving me my first summer by the time I ended I was like yeah I can do this I had to I had $87 to my name so my advice for you guys if it's your first summer your second summer whatever doesn't matter what year you are you need to find those things that drive you that help keep you disciplined that will help you push yourself to the next door to the next objection to the next day You need to find those things and keep them in the little cookie jar. That's what uh, David Goggins says. Because when you're in those those moments where you're feeling weak and you want to sit down on the curb, you want to Uber home, you want to get on your phone, whatever it is, pull out that little cookie jar and pull out those little memories, those those little driving factors to keep you motivated. Keep you disciplined.
keep you driving to the next door, the next objection, the next the next day. If anything, just do your best to be 1% better today than you were yesterday. And you will be surprised at the difference you will make in your life if you focus on that. And uh, during the summer, I think it really starts with having a really good routine. Um, I know a lot of guys during the summer that would wake up and they just they just sleep in. They'd wake up whenever they woke up, and then they'd get ready and come to the office. They'd stay up late, play Xbox, play whatever. They wouldn't socialize. They wouldn't go to the any any of the uh, any of the activities. And I think that definitely played a huge role in their failures and or success. But success in the in the negative. Go to the activities. Socialize. Go have fun. Like the summer can be a blast. It doesn't have to be all work. It can be play too. But you gotta go let it be play. Have a routine. Go to the gym in the morning. Come back. Eat your breakfast. Read a book. Make sure you have a routine in place. Mine was waking up. Going to the gym. Getting home. I'd eat my breakfast while I'm eating. I'd read a book. Talk with my wife for a little bit. And then hit the hit the road to the doors. Having a routine is super, super important. There's a couple of things I integrated along the way to try and strengthen you know, my mental capacity. Like cold showers. Trying to do things that were unpleasant to me. And things that I didn't want to do. Uh, definitely helps a lot. Man. Just think of that summer. It was brutal. The second summer was too, but I at least knew what, to, knew what to expect my second summer. And you know what's crazy? My second summer, the first door I hit, it's the exact same one as my first one. I was still super, super scared, super nervous. And uh, I completely botched it. Super botched it. And uh, what's even crazier is every day I get those same butterflies. Every day. I've done this for five years now, going on my fifth year of, of sales, door-to-door sales. And every single day, it's the exact same. I get the butterflies, I get nervous, but I try to live by the five-second rule. When I get to area and I park my car, I have five seconds to turn the car off and to get out. Otherwise, all these different temptations will start creeping in to get on my phone, to enjoy the AC, Practice my pitch, right? So you got five seconds. You need to make a rule. As soon as you get to your area, you stop your car, turn it off, and get out. Otherwise, it just gets harder and harder and harder to to make it happen. Start with the little things in your in your routine. If you're the person that wakes up in the morning and uh, just gets at it, awesome. If you're not, start by making your bed. It's really, really simple. doesn't cost anything. Start by making your bed. If you start by making your bed in the morning, it's the first win of the day. It's an easy win, right? Then start off something simple by reading a book after. It doesn't have to be more than a, a single sentence. Just do something, right, that you can commit to and that you can keep that commitment. And just build on those. And it's a compounding effect. The better and better you can get at making, keeping those small commitments and having those little wins 
they're going to add up to really big wins. You don't have to necessarily go out and start smashing the gym today and completely change your your eating habits and reading every book known to man, running 15 miles in the morning, the cold plunge. You don't have to start doing all those the same day. And I honestly don't think you should because what happens is people will set too big of an expectation for themselves and they'll fail and it will relapse them and you'll you'll have more of a negative out of that than if you made a small commitment like to make your bed and then you didn't do it. A lot bigger of a negative effect if you do it the other way. It's the little things. It's the little wins. First summer tip. Get your pitch down before you get to wherever market wherever your market is, get your pitch down. If you don't know your words, it's going to be really hard for you to go out and sell whatever product you're trying to sell. Get your pitch down. <laughs> it's so important. It's so frustrating me to me when uh, we'd have reps come out and go drop them off. And I, Dude, I don't even know my pitch. Why don't you know your pitch? Why don't you know your intro, your three, your three sentence intro? How do you not know that yet? How are you going to go knock a door? It's frustrating. But a tip with it, though, like I said, is know your pitch. Because once you know your pitch, you know exactly where you're going. You know where you've been. You know what's coming next. You give the pitch. It's a yes or no from the customer. Most oftentimes it's no. Then go on to your next objection. And the next one, and the next one. It's feature, benefit, close. ABCs. Always be closing. But what I'm meaning is you can really improve your pitch by focusing on those little wins. So when you get to a door and you've had a really, really bad string of days where you may have got one or two sales, um, speaking in pest control terms, you may have got one or two sales and you just can't get anything further than that. You better be tracking your numbers, how many doors you're knocking, how many people you're talking to. How many times you've given your pitch, how many objections you went through with each customer. You need to know those things if you want to be successful because you can really narrow down where you're skipping, skipping out on in your pitch. If you are really good at getting through your intro with every customer, awesome. That's really good. But what's next? Is it price? Is it a feature and benefit? Track those things. Next five doors, say, I'm going to get through my intro with the next five customers. Once you get there, reset. Okay, the next five doors, I'm going to get through price with every one of them. Okay, once you're through on price, reset. And next five, I'm going to get through the first objection. Okay, and you just continue this process and you're going to get really, really good at measuring and tracking your numbers and being able to adjust what you need to in order to obtain more sales. Super, super important. Now, I don't do pest control anymore. Um, to be honest, I kind of got bored of the sale. <laughs> it was very monotonous. It was the very it was the same. Every single door is the same. Um, and to be honest, I just got bored of it. And um, so I'm in solar now, and I love it. It's um, more articulate. It's more involved. 
you get to know the customers on a more intimate level than you do with pest control. And obviously there's more commission involved. Now you don't sell as many as frequently, but the payouts are very, very large. Um, but one of the biggest problems I've seen in solar is that the money will take over people and their values and everything. So if any of you are looking at getting into any sort of sale, but especially solar, make sure your values are set straight because it's really easy to go into a home, you know their financials more or less, you know what they're paying per month, you know how to manipulate the numbers or not, and you have to be able to have made the decision beforehand that you will not be that kind of person. Um, integrity is one of the most important values for me, if not the most important. I will not work with anyone, no matter who they are, if you do not have a core value centered around integrity. That's so important. I mean, integrity is going to govern and dictate all of your decisions, all of them. If you're somebody that's in a relationship and you don't have integrity, you're somebody that can be easily swayed to be unfaithful. If you are a car salesman, this is a prime example. My, uh, I won't name names either, but um, actually I will. It was one of my brothers. He was a car salesman. And um, he was asked to sell a car that they knew had problems with it. Um, and the manager was pushing and poking and prodding at him to sell it. Um, he had to make a decision that day based on his integrity and his character, what he was going to do or not. And um, I don't remember what his uh, decision ended up being, but um, regardless of the outcome, he had previously made that decision. Um, and this goes with, with anything in life. Most decisions are made beforehand. Um, the test of that decision comes in the moment when you're presented with the opportunity to either hold true to whatever value that was and whatever decision it was or not. I mean, we have it in DARE, right? That's a, DARE is a program um, that I went through in, in uh, middle school or elementary or high school, something, something. And basically, they just, like, driven, they had this quote driven into our heads of, you know, not to do drugs, period. And um, they would have us, like, practice these scenarios where, um, you know, we'd be presented with meth or whatever drug, you name it. And we made the decision and said, no, we're not going to do that. And the idea was that in the future, when we were presented legitimately with those drugs and those opportunities, we would say no, because we previously made that decision. So again, the principle here is if you make a decision on something earlier, it's a lot easier to stick to it when that opportunity actually comes to really make the decision or not. So hopefully you can get something out of that. Change what you need to with your core values. If anything, I would sit down and take an hour out of your day and try and figure out what your core values are. Just list them out. There's, there's a million of them. Be uh, 
obviously integrity, right? Honesty, um, gratitude, hard work. There's a, there's a million of them. You need to write them down. You can have 15, you can have two, you can have a thousand of them. And what you want to do is narrow them down to like your top five, the ones that are most important. If you got rid of all of them, which ones had to stay, no matter what. Those need to be your core values and stick to them. They can change later, right? As we evolve and adapt and grow and mature. <laughs> Excuse me, mature. <laughs> so we mature. Your uh, values and your um, your core values might change. But hopefully they change in the better. Man, but what a game the door-to-door world is. It's crazy. There's tons of opportunity. You can be in pest control and you can make pretty decent money each summer. You can recruit a team, make more money that way. You can do alarms, payouts bigger. You can still build a pretty decent team like that and make really good money. You can go solar. You don't have to build a big team and you can make some stupid money. You can also build a team and help a lot of your friends and family and neighbors and whoever else come to the table and eat with you. And you can make a lot of money that way. Um, I've chosen to make my career towards the solar route because, like I said, I just enjoy the sale more. More intimate with the customer. I get to understand them a little bit more. And these are relationships that you get to cultivate for a long, long time. For example, I live in Texas currently. I think I actually live. I've got a sticker on my safe. (laughs) Texas. I'm not Texas made, but that safe was. I have no idea, actually. It's Canyon. I don't know. (laughs) But anyways... Um, I live in Texas and really the only way to hunt in Texas is to pay to play. You got to find somebody that owns the land. You got to either pay them. You got to lease it. A lot of them are private ranches where they have animals there that you basically pay to go hunt. And it's a pick and choose kind of thing. And I hate that. But sometimes that is what it is. Um, there are ranches though that you can go out and it's just free game. You know, the animal you're looking for, but you still have to go hunt it down, find it. Um, but anyways, I was trying to figure out a way that I did not have to pay to play necessarily. Um, I got this inside sales lead that wanted an actual sales rep to go out to his property. So I left and went out there. Um, this is months and months in the work. I mean, I went to that dude's house like once a week, maybe more, went over paperwork, changed designs, wanted a battery, no battery. I mean, it was a mess. Um, but I stuck to it tried to build the best relationship I could with him. And um, by the end of it, I said, hey, listen, I've been coming out here a lot. Um, I really want to help you with your solar more. I really want to come hunt on your property. You own 83 acres. Nobody hunts on the other side because it's owned by the university. The two guys on the left and the right of you, one of them is a wildlife sanctuary, so he doesn't hunt it. And the guy on the other side is just super old and doesn't hunt it. So you got some good game here. I want to hunt it. And he said, you know what, if you do good with me, uh, install goes well, we get PTO'd in a timely fashion, he said, you can come hunt it. So uh, long story short, got him installed, made a good chunk of change, and then, but I've been able to go hunt it, which is really cool. So you get to do these really cool things with these customers that you normally wouldn't do with pest, right? It's a one and done, that's it. I, I don't know anybody that I sold in pest control. There's like some people that I remember that were like government workers or had cool stories or something, but that was it. Now, solar, though, I can remember every single person I've sold. I know where they're at. I'd have to, like, look at addresses sometimes, but I'll know the name, and I can put a face to the name. 
I know if they have kids, I knew if they had um, property, if they were a trailer. I knew these people and it was so cool um, to go into their home and sit down with them and be able to talk about their kids game that's going on next week. Um, it's a really cool, cool thing to do. Plus you get to help eliminate a bill, not add one to them. Um, get them, you know, get them a good tax credit. if They qualify for it. A lot of really cool things. Probably my favorite though, more than anything was the process. Um, I got to go and build the proposal for the home pick where the panels went, what kind of panels. I mean, the whole process. I was involved with the designs, right? We'd have a design team get the stuff ready, send it to me. I count the panels, count the inverters, make sure everything's good to go. I mean, it's a big process with solar. It's not just a, we're going to install you tomorrow. It's, hey, we've got to pull permits, got to approve designs, we've got to wait for the uh, loans to be NTP'd, meaning the banks give us a notice to proceed so we can go install I mean, there's so many things that come into play with it, and um, it helps it not feel so monotonous and so boring. But it's definitely a more or less advanced sales process, more or less. I will, however, contribute my grit and my work ethic and my drive from doing pest control sales. I mean, that crap is a war. It's an all-out war between yourself, between the homeowners, the other reps in the area. Man. It's good stuff. I think everybody should go out and do a, a summer sales trial whatever you want to call it. I think everybody should do at least one summer sales, summer of selling. Because I will tell you, if you let it, you will come out a completely different person. If you let it. And I mean that in a good way. When I got home, people were like, dude, who's this Cade guy? He's not, definitely not the guy we knew in high school. I and my friends talk about that a lot. I mean, how you talk is going to be different. The way you say things will be different. I mean, there's so many benefits to, to doing the summer sales that I think everybody should do it. The things you learn and the principles that it can teach you, if you're with the right company, will last you a lifetime. I mean, you cannot pay for these things that you'll learn. There's no way. Like, you cannot put a price tag on the things that um, I've been taught, the things I've been uh, that I've learned, the skills I've developed, the mental capacity I've obtained. I mean, there's just no way you can pay for that. There's no way. Maybe the skill side of it, but if you can't go practice it, it's garbage. Just because I have a bow sitting up on my shelf doesn't mean I'm good at it. I got to go use it. I got to go practice. I've got to shoot 100,000 arrows. I've got to break half of them. That crap's expensive. Don't break your arrows. Man, what a day and time and an age we get to live in where I can go to someone's house that I have no idea who they are, tell them I'm with whatever company, XYZ, and I can sell them a pest control, I can sell them alarms, I can sell them carpet cleaning, 
I can sell them vacuums, window washing, solar, alarms. I mean, crazy. Sell anything door to door. Anything. I don't know about you guys. What's the, uh, what's the most odd product you've seen being sold door to door? I think for me, it actually happened like a few months ago. Some girl was selling um, these... What were they? They were like these educational books for kids. And they were like... I felt so bad for her. I gave her a hundred bucks because I was not going to buy. But I was like... What on earth am I going to pay $800 for these... Why would I pay $800 for these books? She goes, well, do you know why the octopus does this? Or why the dolphins do that? Did you know this about the koala... No, but Google's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't mean to dog on it, but selling books door to door. What a time. What a time to be alive. That kind of brings me to my next point. There's a lot of ways to make money. Tons of ways. If you're going to college and you're struggling working, you know, a part-time gig, making ends meet and going to school, screw it. Go to school, go do summer sales on the off season. Go to school, go to summer sales on the off season. And I'm not saying come work for me. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> but go do it. It'll change your life for the better if you let it. For me, I got into the summer sales because one, I was broke as a joke and, uh, you know, promised all this money that we could make. Um, side note. Don't believe anything anybody tells you about the money you can make until you go out and make the money. Don't believe it. Anything somebody promises you, make sure it's in an offer letter. Make sure it's written down. Make sure it's something that you can sign and they can sign. I see it time and time again, people getting screwed. Oh, they promised me this, they promised me that. Was it written in your contract? No? There you go. So make sure you get your stuff written in a contract. But anyways... Summer sales is a really good, great place to start with making money. Um, I've seen it countless times where people go, uh, they'll make their money during the summer, they go to school in the off season, and then just rinse and repeat. I've seen people go out, they'll do summer sales um, on the off season. Um, they'll make more than what they need to live off of, excuse me, live off of, and then they use that excess money to go start different ventures. They start flipping cars, they start flipping couches. Eventually they can get into real estate, stocks, apartments, Airbnbs, all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's such a cool springboard to get you into building wealth for yourself and creating passive income, creating a legacy, creating something that you can do on the side, a hobby, whatever it is. I mean, it's it's a really cool cool thing to do. Like I said, I really think everybody should should do at least one summer of doing summer sales. At least one. As I was uh, thinking about what to say, um, one of the things that came to mind was um, is an example. Um, I see it every single year that I look at somebody and go, man, they are going to be the guy or the girl this year. They're going to sell everybody. 
And then I see other people that come in. I'm like, there's no way this dude's going to sell. No way. There's no way this chick's going to do it. No way. But I see it time and time again. And every year where I get proved wrong in both categories. This guy will come in. Prime guy for doing summer sales. And falls on his face. Because he has zero work ethic or he's a really piss poor attitude and then i see these guys or these girls that come in that i think there's no way no way they'll sell and they crush it because they have a good work ethic and a good attitude in my opinion there's really only one of two things that happen or both um, on, on why someone will fail during the summer or why, why someone doesn't make money. And it always comes down to a work ethic or an attitude problem. Always. So if you're that person that's currently failing, go check yourself. Are you in a bad attitude? Do you have a bad attitude about what's going on? The area, the people, the whatever? Or does your work ethic suck? It could be one or both. But that is, in my opinion, the only thing or the only reason I've seen people fail is they just have a bad work ethic or bad attitude or both. If you have both, you probably just go home, more or less. But the reason I bring up this topic was to teach that principle. But also, um, we had this sales rep that came out and I thought he would you know, do okay. I thought he'd do decent. And he did. He did okay. But he stayed stagnant. He kind of just stayed the same every single year. Never sold a ton, but he didn't sell, you know, poorly. He just kind of there. Hit the minimums, got, you know, sold enough to get by. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's uh, these first-year reps that come in, and they smoke him. He's a three-year rep. He's a four-year rep, right? He's a veteran of the of the door-to-door world. But yet, these guys come in, and or the girls, right? Got to be politically correct now. They come in and they just trash on him. And um, time and time again. But his work ethic was, unpeca- was impeccable. And he always had a really, really good attitude. And what ended up happening is he continued to practice, continued to practice. He'd work on the off-season, callousing his mind, being disciplined. He'd read books. He'd understand psychology. And... It propelled him. I mean, he went from doing maybe two, 250 accounts to 400 accounts. Granted, it took him four years, but like he got there. He got there. So my advice to you is, one, don't quit. Make sure you have a good work ethic. Make sure you have a good attitude. If you don't have those things, fix it. Go volunteer to work on a farm for a week. That'll show you what work ethic looks like. If you have a crappy attitude, go volunteer at a homeless shelter. Your attitude will change about your situation really quick. Go volunteer at a nursing home. Go sing carols to them. Go ask to help deliver waters. When my mom worked at uh, one of the nursing homes, um, me and my brother would go in and we'd fill up these huge trays, like half the size of the table of all these waters. And when you go walk around, we'd knock on doors and ask if they wanted their water filled or ask if they wanted one of these. And um, those are the things that help me have a really good attitude and remain positive and making sure that I don't 
um, ever fall short of that problem. Again, we have our weak our weaknesses, right? Our weak times, but um, just make sure you have a good attitude. It'll help a ton. Um, probably more than you understand. Summer sales, door-to-door, solar, pest control, alarms, vacuums, water filters. It's all there. Man. To be a first-year rep again, would I go back? It's a good question. Would I do it again? Absolutely. (laughs) Would my wife go do it again? I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure she would. Man, um, any of those guys out there that are doing the summer sales and they have a wife, call them sales wives, go love on her right now. Go tell her you are so grateful for her sacrifice in moving to wherever, Timbuktu. Go tell her you're grateful for helping prepare your meals, helping wash your clothes, dishes. Go say thank you. If you are a... Uh, sales org that's listening to this do everything in your power to go make sure those wives feel important and feel included everything in your power because without them your sales reps that are married to them are nothing absolutely nothing and until you can understand that harsh reality you're going to keep losing reps because those wives are going to get tired of moving back and forth regardless of the money Regardless of the incentives and the trips, they're going to get tired of it because they don't feel important. They don't feel valued. Go say thank you to them. Go have a special ceremony for them, not just the sales guys. Make sure those wives feel important. If you're a sales, if you're an actual saleswoman, <laughs> go say thank you to your guy. But let's be honest, those guys are probably not home making food and washing dishes and washing clothes. <laughs> it's still probably you. Us guys were whack. We need to get kept in check, though. That's that's for sure. Man. Summer sales. I never thought I'd be here. When I did my second summer, um, I think it was halfway through. No. I got done with my second summer. I was in Arizona living there at the time with my wife. And I was studying to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's what I wanted to do. Go make the big bucks work with my hands, swing some hammers, do some drills, do the manly stuff in the surgeon world. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, it had clicked that I could do a lot of the same stuff, um, meaning like helping people, making good money. I could do those things and not have to go to school for 10 years or 15 years. I could put my time in now building myself, Um, building my portfolio and real estate and stocks and whatever. And I could live a pretty cool life. Um, It was a really hard decision that me and my wife had to come to together that I was going to drop out of school and just pursue this full time. It was a really hard decision. One of the hardest ones I think we've ever had to make. And um, have we regretted it sometimes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not easy would have been really easy to uh, go to school, get my degree, go find a job, sit at a desk all day. would have been really easy to do that. If that's you, don't take offense to it. But it would have been really easy to do that. 
And in a world uh, that we live in today, it's pretty easy to make it more or less. It was a really hard decision though to drop out. I knew that it would be really hard with her parents. It uh, it wouldn't be as hard for mine just because my stepdad and my dad, um, neither one of them went to college. I know that's something that they you know pushed for, but they also understand it wasn't for everybody. But it was still hard on them. It was hard to see you know. Let's see, graduated in 2015, so 2019, 2020 when I finished my first and second summer. Um, <clears throat> I was seeing all of my friends from high school graduating, get their engineering degree, their psychology degree, their business degree, whatever it was, getting all these degrees, graduating, and here I was doing summer sales, <laughs> going to Virginia every year. But I also knew, though, that my path that I was on was different, and I had chose that, and that's what I was going to do. Um... It's been a wild ride. I did three years of pest control in August of 2021. I switched over to solar. Um, loved it. It was awesome. Built a team. Um, company kind of sucked. Went back to doing pest control. Was the director of sales for them. Um, that was um, really interesting. Tied my hands a lot with that one. Um, didn't want to let the you know the company, the rest of the branches know we were doing solar. And I think in all honesty, they were really scared to lose their sales reps, like really scared, (laughs) really scared. Um, And I think that's what it came down to. So it really, they tied my hands to only solicit to our current customers, but they were very impatient. Um, So ultimately, I believe they shut the program down. At least that's what I was told. And um, that sucked. But... I called up a bunch of contacts that I'd I'd known. I told them, hey, I'm not interested in being a regular sales rep anymore. I want to be in the leadership. I want to be behind the scenes. I want to be working with the reps to help them build themselves. I want to build a program with you. And eventually I landed on with a company called Delta Solar Power here in San Antonio. And um, so I'm their current VP of sales. Am I ready for this position? I don't know. But what I do know is that I have a really good work ethic and I have a really good attitude. I work harder than a lot of people. I'm not going to say everybody because I'm sure there's people that can outwork me. I've got a great wife that will support me the whole way. And I've got to go make milk money now. So... The difference between... I learned this from a guy named Jed Ross and he owns Piranha. And um, this is something that's stuck in my head for a long time. He said, why do you make your money? And I said, oh, you know, to go buy real estate, stocks, go on trips. And he said, when you understand the importance or when your mindset shifts shifts to where you want to start making money for milk money, um, your whole perspective will change. So milk money basically... Um, it's not necessarily self-explanatory, but basically just means you're working to make sure that your kids have money for milk at school. They can, for whatever. And, uh, the principle behind it is you're not just working for yourself anymore to provide for yourself or your wife or vice versa, the wife or the husband. You're, you're working to provide for your family, for your kids. 
And for those of you that don't have kids, you will not understand this concept until you have your own. I thought I understood it before I had kids. Now that I have one, um, you won't understand it until. The thought of them having to, you know, skip a meal or not have what they need in order to just live, that's a scary thought. It's sickening to me. That That is one of the things that I fear the most. So I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that they never have to deal with that. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Yeah, it's a wild ride. Life. Sucks and then you die. <laughs> Just kidding. Life's great. Life's is, life is what you make it. Leave your thoughts in the in the uh, comments for me. I want to I want to know what you think about some of this. If you have any other first year tips, put them in. Forget yourself and go to work is probably a, a really good one to know. And um, I'm actually going to end on um, a quote that I heard today. It goes something like this. I don't know where it was from, but. Um, Go something like this. When the pain of your current reality becomes more than the fear of the future or of change, that's when change occurs. May have butchered the last part. But think about that. When the pain, uh, here, here it is, I think I noticed. So if the, uh, when the pain of your current reality becomes greater than the fear of the unknown, that's when change happens. So if you're so sick and tired of living paycheck to paycheck, and that pain becomes so much more than going to get the new job, leaving where you're at and going to something that could be better or something that you have no idea if it can be better, right? For summer sales, for example, if you leave a, a job that gives you a decent paycheck and you can rely on that, but it's not cutting it, when you're so sick and tired of living like that, that you will jump head first into a summer sales program or something like it, career change, whatever, that's when change happens. I was so sick and tired of living paycheck to paycheck. I was so sick and tired of scrapping by with school, um, with work. We lived in this tiny little apartment for like, I think it was like 450 bucks. It was horrible, it was disgusting. But we had to, to make it work, to get by. And the moment that it really hit me was um, when I was thinking about my wife and seeing the things that I was providing currently. Like, if I had a daughter that was living in, they weren't like terrible conditions, right? But I mean, we're just in like this nasty little apartment in, in Arizona. When I finally was like, this is ridiculous. Like, if, if my daughter was running around with a guy that 
was providing that, like, like, man, it was sickening to me. Um, I didn't want her dad to ever think that I couldn't provide enough or I wasn't providing enough ever. And that's really when I decided to make the change. I was sick of working at the hospital every night and then waking up to go to school and having no sleep, doing it all again the next day. I was sick and tired of that. And for me, that like I said, that's when I made the decision to end up going to do pest control. It's because I was so sick and tired of where I was at. So think of the things that you're super sick that you are sick and tired of. And go make the change. And in reality, all we have to fear is fear itself. But at the core, fear is a decision, it's a choice. Our brains are programmed to keep us safe, to keep us warm and cozy, make sure nothing happens to us. We have to make the decision to override that and get in the sauna, get in the cold plunge. You got to make the decision to step outside your comfort zone if you're going to grow, if you're going to change. Stagnant water is poisonous. That's pretty much it. For those of you that are not the door-to-door people and you're just listening in on this, hopefully you've got some, you've taken some good values and some good principles from it as well. I'm by no means an expert. I'm in my freaking garage. Um, my uh, studio is currently being built, but I'm in my garage. Like, I don't think people understand that it doesn't matter what you know where you're at in life, what your situation is. Like, you can put yourself outside your comfort zone. For me to record myself, one on audio, I hate my voice, hate the sound of it. I feel like I sound very monotone. And then also to couple that with a video, like, come on, that's way outside my comfort zone. But I'm doing it because I want to grow. I want to change. I want to do something bigger than myself. The only way to do that is by doing. So with that, it is 11.28. I don't know how long this podcast is off the top of my head. I'm sure it's a hot minute. So I'm going to end it. But do the same old, same old. Like, subscribe, comment, follow, blah, 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 blah. But more than anything, I want to hear your guys' feedback. Be brutally honest with me. Tell me I'm monotone. Tell me I'm fat and ugly. Tell me... My shirt looks stupid. Tell me my sugar skull sucks. I'll throw it at you, though. Tell me uh, some things you guys learned if you did summer sales. Tell me some things you learned your first summer. So you can give some advice looking back. Give some. Give uh, Give that feedback. Yeah. And catch you guys next time. What's up, guys? Um, Today's podcast is going out to a guy named Hunter Bradley out of Utah. 
Um, Hunter Bradley is a avid listener of the podcast, and he gave me the great idea to talk about elk hunting, which is one of my biggest passions. I love elk hunting. Have I killed the biggest elk yet? No, but I'm getting there. <laughs> but um, <coughs> this uh, podcast is going out to him, though. Hunter asked specifically, how do I hunt big elk? And Hunter, my first thing I'm going to say to you is good luck because <laughs> they're hard to find and they are hard to harvest. The reason they get that big is no secret. They spend every waking minute dealing with bears, wolves, every season dealing with hunters. They're smart. There's a reason they get that big. Part of it's genetics, but also another part of it is they're that smart. So kind of breaking it down, uh, first things first is elk are really hard in general. Um, of 89,000 people, we'll call it 90,000 people that got tags last year, only 22% tagged out and less than 10% tagged out with archery. Let that sink in. I think there's only 12 or 13 states that have elk in them. Could be wrong, but I think it's around 12 or 13. And that means that about 130-ish people from each state tagged with archery. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the uh, what percentage of bulls they were, but it's got to be pretty small. And so... First thing I would say is um, you got to understand elk and what they are. You got to understand their movement. You got to understand their language. You got to understand their seasons, the breeding seasons. You got to understand it a lot. And almost to the point where you're obsessive over it. Because, like I said, there's a reason they get that big. Um, I brought a couple of uh, of show and tells for today. So those that you are listen, those of you that are listening, I brought in a couple of different. Uh, I brought an elk head with me that I've taxidermied, and then I've also brought a just a um, an antler, so I can show you another bit of it. And then I'm going to tell you a couple of stories along the way of um, my experiences with it, um, the elk that I've harvested, and I'll I'll share some of those stories. But um, yeah, that's first thing got to know them. You got to understand them. You got to learn everything about them. Um, that also comes with putting in the time. You've got to put in the time in the mountains. You got to find where they're at. You got to research and like I said, understand them. And a really good way to do that is in the field, out in the mountains. Another really good way is if you're doing summer sales and you had to drive 33 hours to the state you're selling in and back, it's a really good time to put on podcast after podcast, to put on YouTube video after YouTube video and really understand what those elk are saying. Elk 101 gives a really good breakdown of these elk and what they say because every elk sounds different. Just like you and I, we all sound different. Some sound better, some sound not as good. But they all sound different. They all make different sounds. Sounds mean different things. The cow calls are different than the bulls, obviously. But 
they all make different sounds and they all mean something different. And sometimes they're just talking, just like you and I talk sometimes. Could have no meaning. Sometimes they just talk. So you got to understand like what they're saying and why. And then an even bigger step forward is understand what to say back to them. Because it's one thing to find them, another thing to understand what they're saying and, and why they're saying it. And then it's a whole other reason to understand what to say back. Now, I would rather hunt with somebody that understands the elk in their language and what to say back to them than somebody that has the best elk call in the world. Hands down. And as you start to hunt and work with others, you'll come to the same conclusion because it doesn't, it's just, it's hard to put into words, but it's really difficult to work with somebody that thinks they know the language and they think they know how to talk to an elk, but in reality they don't. Um, for example, just, just an example for you. A lot of people think that an elk bark is the warning sign or the sign that says, Hey, I'm done. I'm out. And then they give up when in reality, what it really means is, Hey, something's a little funny here. I'm not sure that I like what I'm smelling, what I'm seeing, or maybe I'm close enough to you that I should see you, but I don't. And I don't like that. And so instead of giving up and going home and packing up and heading out and man, they got busted. People don't understand, but you can bark back at them and say, Hey, I also am a little uncomfortable about this. I also see something that I'm not comfortable with. I'm smelling something I'm not comfortable with. I think you should come to me. So there's a way you can save it. It's not going to happen every time, but, um, it, it works. So that's just an example of what you need to understand with elk, that level of understanding of what they're saying and how to talk back to them. Okay. So after you understood where the elk are, what they're saying, why they're saying it, you've put some time into the mountains. That's when I think that most people are going to be more successful when hunting elk. You need to increase every odd and every chance you have in every aspect when you're hunting them. So that's why I'm saying there's, there's a number of things that need to be in order or put in place that you're trying, you're actively working at, um, when hunting elk, um, Third thing would be to understand what things are going to trigger an alert for the elk. Um, this partly is, you know, their behavior and, and whatnot and their language and stuff, but you don't need to have the best camo in the world. I'm going to break the internet saying that, <laughs> but you don't need to have Sitka and all these other brands. You don't need to have them. I have hunted plenty of time in Walmart camo. In fact, I still hunt in Walmart camo. That's not that I can't go afford the other stuff. It's that what I have works and the camo is not everything. If you think that you need to have great camo in order to hunt and to be a great hunter, you're not going to be either of those. You're not going to be as successful. What you do need to understand though is they smell more than anything. They rely on sight very heavily, but they also rely on smell and when preparing for your hunt, it's really important to make sure you've got a really good process down of how you wash all of your camo, 
the maintenance with it from when you wherever you wash it, whether it's your house, your cabin, whatever. Um, you need to have a really good process set up that you can then make sure that your camo stays scent free from when you wash it till when you get in the field. Now, my protocol, and this could be wrong, definitely could be improved on, but my protocol is I never wash my hunting clothes with any of my normal clothes. I never wash them with any regular detergent. And in fact, when I go to wash them, I run a cycle by itself. I run one with a detergent used specifically for you know hunting, and then I wash my clothes. Then I'll go through the dryer, I'll clean out the lint, I'll make sure that the lint catcher itself has been washed out, and then I run a cycle with a scent-free, specific, specific um, dryer sheet for hunting again. And what I'm actually trying to do is, one, getting rid of all the smells, but I'm actually trying to get rid of the vibrancy if that's even a word, the vibrant colors, the, um, the, the brighteners in the, in the detergents. That's what the elk are really going to see. Um, some people have said that there's a, there's a hue that they can see of those bright, those brighteners. And that's what you're trying to get rid of. So camo definitely has a part to play. You need to make sure it at least matches the environment. You're not going to wear a desert camo into a, um, into the timbers, right? And vice versa, because you don't want something that's going to be bright green out in the desert, but you don't want something that's brown and very, very uh, distinguishable in green. That doesn't make sense. And I wouldn't even say brown, I would say like a very light tan, like sand color, right? Desert. So just really understand the fundamentals. Um, firearm safety, obviously, hunter's etiquette. Um, you need to understand the rules, the regulations within your own state. And my gosh, guys, don't go to those forums and ask for opinions and ask for advice. Go to the regs, call a local fishing game officer, and get the info from them. There are some gray areas in some of the regulations, so that's why I say reach out to your local um, law enforcement officer. They will be able to help you way more than anything. Okay. And then on top of that, you can even backdate that if something came to be, but say, you know, last week I called Officer Johnson about XYZ. He said this and that. And they're going to be able to ask Officer Johnson and say, hey, did you say this? Yes or no? Okay, cool. He said it. You know, there's some gray area there. Um, we'll let it go or just in the future, just don't do this. And it's really simple. But make sure you cover your butt on that. Um, if you're a newbie hunting in an area area that you've never hunted in, make sure you read the regs. Even if you're going out with somebody that's very experienced, they know exactly what to hunt, when you can hunt it, all the regulations, and they say that, don't believe them. Because one thing in this world that is not like put up with is going to be anything in the fish and wildlife, anything in the outdoors world that any viol any violations in that they just don't tolerate them so they can take your truck they can take your gun they can take your equipment they can um, um, suspend your license they can even ban you from hunting in that state for years and eventually you could actually get banned in multiple states if you are 
convicted or found guilty of multiple of these things. So you just have to be really careful with it. And yeah, that should scare you a little bit. That's a good thing. You need to be a little cautious and hesitant when you are hunting because it's that important. And it's best to know it for yourself rather than rely on somebody else. Because if there's a regulation that's changed, which happens, by the way, regulations change year to year. And if you are not up to date on those year to year, you could get caught in one of those things that got changed and now you're hosed. Now you're going to be slapped with a big fine. They're going to confiscate your truck, your gun, your bow, whatever equipment that was used. Um, also for the listeners, I'm going to apologize in advance. Um, we got a pretty nasty storm outside, so you, it might be uh, something that gets picked up in this. Um, but that would be that'd be where I would start if you're wanting to hunt big elk um, and elk in general. But specific for big elk is really going to be the language. You really got to understand that. If you want to pull the big herd bulls that come out, you've got to got to got to understand the language. It's very important. Okay. Um, I'm going to share a couple of uh, um, of my show and tells really quick. So this right here is a shed from an elk. It was a one, two, three, four, five, six. It was a six point, but one of them got broken off, probably in a fight or something. But found this one out in Arizona. And then this one right here is my bull that I took um, two Septembers ago. <clears throat> He's like a four by five, I think. Or a four by three. Super young bull. But um, story behind that one's pretty cool. Um, We'll backtrack a couple weeks before I took mine or maybe a week before um, I was able to be a part of my of one of my youngest brothers um, when he took his first bowl. It was really cool. We were out in the mountains in, in Island Park, Idaho. Um, and if anybody knows me and is listening to this, you'll understand that my biggest fears in life are sharks and bears and Island Park is full of bears. So I was reluctant to go um, at first, but um, bears freaked me out. But this one was really cool. We were up in the mountains. Um, I remember we were in this big ravine. There's a big, there's one big mountain on one side, one big mountain on the other side, and we were kind of in the middle. We started calling. We heard some bulls. We started chasing them. We went up the ravine, went off to the right, kept hearing them. But it almost seemed like he was getting farther and farther and farther away. I don't know if he smelled us. I don't know if he was hearing us. I don't know if he just felt a little funny about how we were calling. Didn't like him. And when we were at the top of the mountain, as we were looking over God's country and all the beautiful trees and, and mountains that we could see, and the quietness, I mean, it was so quiet, it was so peaceful. But as we were sitting there listening to that and figuring out what we wanted to do, making a game plan, we heard this bull pop off on the other side of the valley. And I mean, he you, you couldn't see him, it was too thick, but I mean, he was just directly across from us, like almost, almost straight, straight across. 
So we made a game plan. We're going to, hey, we're going to run down to the bottom there and we're going to start calling, working his way down. And he seemed kind of like a young bull, um, which makes it difficult because sometimes the older bulls will actually call like a younger bull because they want to be perceived as a younger bull, even though they're not. And there's some, you know, reasons behind that. Go find them out. But we we uh, ran down to the bottom. We were making some cow calls and stuff and uh, really just trying to play at this guy, get him to come down. So my dad was calling. He's making some call, some uh, cow calls, some mews, mews, stuff like that, getting him a little excited, letting him know there was a cow there. And what's really fun is when you can get those bulls set off, when they just go crazy. And this bull... Um, he was very, very fixated on this cow, loved any time that cow would talk, he'd talk right back. And what's fun is you can actually flip the switch really, really quick with these bulls if you do it right. So you're calling with these cow calls, calling, calling, calling. And one of the cow calls when we were kind of, we were getting close to the bottom, we stopped and we're listening, trying to figure out where he was at. And one of the cow calls at the very end of it, my dad immediately went straight into a lip ball, um, which is kind of like that typical gnarly elk call. And what that does is basically he was trying to cut his cow off saying, hey, I'm your bull, not that guy, me. You're in heat, shut your mouth. That's really what it means. And so in the other bull's mind, in the real bull's mind, he's thinking, oh man, she's ready. She's mine. I want her. Right. And then he hears that bull elk and he goes, mm-mm, the only two of us can play at this game, buddy. And he came running. And I don't mean, you know, trotting. And I mean, he came running. Elk are incredibly quiet. I don't understand how with how big they are, but I heard every footstep he made, heard every twig. I mean, he was running. And at that point, we all looked at each other like, dude, we got to go get ready, man. So we ran out of the bottom. We had this guy set off to the left of us. I was in the middle. And then my younger brother was clear to the right. I'm not joking. We had enough time to make the game plan and to get to where we were at and stop before we saw him beelining it straight to us. And at that point, he was maybe 50, 60 yards out. Uh, so my dad kept working him, working him. And I mean, he was moving. There was no nothing stopping him. And he finally got to maybe 25 yards from me. And he stopped in between two trees. And I was like, dang it, dude. Like, can't shoot there. And he was looking right at me. So another reason was I'm not going to shoot a frontal shot. I just, that's a rule I've personally made. Just don't want to do it. Too much risk involved. Um, but I also know elk can make turns out of nowhere. So I drew back. I was sitting there, had my anchor points ready, full draw, breathing, waiting for him. I picked my windows, you know, found where he could go. And I was like, all right, I'm going to wait. And out of nowhere, my brother just whack. You can hear this arrow fly. And I look over at him. He's shaking and he can barely get out. Dude, I got him. <laughs> he was shaking and so excited. And um, if anybody has got buck fever that's listening, you'll know the feeling. It was so cool. Never seen him smile bigger. Um, but anyway, after he expired, we went over and checked him out. And it was beautiful elk. Um, beautiful, beautiful elk. And I'll put a picture up so you guys can see that. But it was cool. My dad was there. Um, I was there for it. My brother was there for it. It was it was really cool. So that honestly right there in a nutshell is what makes hunting so incredible. 
You got to do it with people you love. You got to make some incredible memories. Every single one of these sheds tells a story. Every single one of these, you know, heads that I have have taxidermied, they all tell a story, and I remember them all. And I think that's what's super neat. But anyway, it was incredible. Um, a week after, I was on a time crunch. I had either drove or flown into Idaho. I don't remember. I think I flew in, but um, uh, no, I, I drove. I think I drove. But anyway, besides the point, we went back to Island Park. Uh, we didn't go to the same area because typically when you go to the same area fairly soon where there has been an animal carcass, there's usually bears and wolves that are kind of attached to that area for a little bit. So we decided to take a break. Plus, we had just, you know, harvested an elk there. So sometimes elk can be a little weary of that. I don't know if it's 100% true. In my experience, that's what I've seen. So next couple of days, we went to another area. Um, we were unsuccessful one day. Um, we had a lot of good contact, a lot of good calls going back and forth. Just couldn't get the job done. So the next morning, we went out to this one place. Um, and it sucked. We had a full moon the night before, which usually means the elk are out feeding because they can see. And it's just like, man, like all odds are against me at this point, you know, like moon was out. Nothing was talking that morning. It was maybe 8.39. We still hadn't heard anything. So we're like, man, maybe we'll go deeper into the timber. There was a little wind going on, so maybe they couldn't hear us. So we went deeper in. And we finally got this one bull to pop off. We could hear him. He was way out there. I mean, like four or five hundred yards out. I mean, just way, way out there. And uh, we hadn't heard anything. So we're like, you know, let's give it a shot. Like, you never know. And what's funny is the guy that was hunting with us that day, um, he had his little kid with him, his little boy. I don't know, maybe six, seven or something like that. And every once in a while, he'd, you know, reach over to his kid, tap on the shoulder, hey. Give him, do an elk call, do an elk call. And this little kid, he'd make a little bugle from his mouth. And it was really funny, but it sounded really good. It sounded like a young bull. And um, anyway, but that's what got this bull talking to us was, was him calling. And so, you know, we switched our calls up, started talking a little quieter, a little, little not big or not as big. And he started getting closer. We could hear him moving, not moving, but we could hear him moving closer to us with his, with his elk calls. And so we're like, all right, let's game plan. So where we were, we had a chunk of timber that we were in. There was maybe 40 yards of some grass and no trees. And then it went back into the timber. And if you're ever looking, if you're standing in that field looking into the timber, you can't see anything because there's so many trees that eventually line up perfectly. It just makes a wall and you can't see out of it or can't see into it. So I went and sat like maybe 10 yards into the timber so that he couldn't see me, but I could see through it because I was in it looking out and, but sucks though, because with that clearing and then his section of trees, I couldn't see in there very well. So I crouched down so I could see under all the leaves and see under all the, um, the pines, right? And I could just see trunks of trees. So I knew that if I could see anything, I'd catch a little bit of the walking movement. So sure enough, he starts getting closer and closer and closer. Like, shoot, man, this is like getting real. So I picked out my several shooting lanes. There were plenty of 40-yard shots, 30-yard shots. I was like, I'm going to take him today. I'm going to get it done. So sat there and waited, kept calling, and he finally see those little feet running. And 
Next thing I know, his head pops out and beautiful animals, man. Beautiful. He steps out in that clearing, but he couldn't see us, obviously, so he wanted to step in more. He had to. So he steps in, and boom, he's in a shooting lane, 40 yards, 35 yards, something like that. But I was like, you know, he's pretty close. He's a little guy, you know. I'm okay to pass him if I need to, or if something doesn't work out, I don't get a good shot, but I want to see how close we can get him. So I waited, and they kept calling, and he'd get a little closer, walking a couple yards. Soon I know it, he's 30 yards. And I was like, holy shoot, I can take this shot. I was like, nah, I'm going to see if we can get closer. So he kept calling, he comes 25 yards. And I was like, oh, this is in the bag. So I wait for him to step behind a tree, so he was blocked, his view was blocked for me, and I drew back. But I stepped on a twig. Stepped on a dang twig, guys. And he looks right at me. Whew. Turns his head. About broke his neck, dang it. And he's staring at me. I'm full draw, but he's behind a tree. At least his body is. But he's looking at me now. And I didn't know it at the time, but my dad, he was like, no, he's going to take the shot. He's going to take the shot. He's going to take the shot. Over and over, he's thinking this, you know. So he's not making any calls, waiting. And I think it finally clicked. He's like, oh, maybe he's in a bad, sh- you know, bad view. Maybe he's in a bad position. So he does a little cow chirp and his head right back to my dad. Kept walking. This At this point, he had to have been maybe 20 yards. Nothing more. Um, waited for him to step broadside. Took a big step with his front shoulder. Flap, let that arrow fly and rest is history. Um, it was incredible. It was incredible. When I let the arrow fly... Um, I mean, you're 15 yards from him, right? So I heard it all, saw it all. And at one point, um, I remember kneeling down. I, I knelt down and, um, it was like when he was like expiring and I just sat there and listened and shut my eyes and just listened. Um, it was weird. It was very weird. But that's something that you as a hunter need to understand that's going to happen, right? You need to come to terms with yourself that that's going to be something that you can do and make the decision that you can do it. It was a really, it was really weird. Um, it's hard to explain unless you've gone through it. But I mean, I was taking a life, right? I was ending uh, some other living thing's life. And that was weird. That was very odd to me to... Because I've shot deer, you know, a couple hundred yards out, 150 yards out. Heck, I killed an elk with a rifle. But being that close where you hear it all, you see it all, um, it's very different. And that's why I get the, the heads taxidermied. That's why I get the capes taxidermied. Because I want to have every possible memory of that elk forever embedded in my head, in my family, in my home. Um, I mean, heck, my freezer's full of him right now, and my family gets to live off of that. We get to eat really healthy and really lean and clean with him. But that's something that you're going to have to understand that you're going to have to go through, and not everybody can go through it, and that's okay. It's totally fine. And you might get be that person that does it once and says, hey, it was a cool experience, but I don't want to do that again, and that's fine. But it is something that you need to recognize is a reality that you'll have to go through. Um, 
But anyways, off the heavy stuff. <laughs> I was I was stoked. I was static. Um I remember one specific moment with it. Um after I shot him, he you know, did this big circle and, you know, was running all over the place. And at one point he ran smack into a tree. I mean, like <laughs> head first, boom, sounded like a dang car hit it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was just, it was incredible. It was crazy. It was at that moment I was like, dude, these animals are just a different breed, totally different breed. Um, but after he expired, we went over and walked up to him and, um, it was my first archery kill and my dad and the guy we were hunting with kind of stayed back a little bit, a couple yards and they just let me go look at him, um, touch him, feel him, um, hold the antlers, um, felt his fur, just looked at him. Um, every time I harvest an animal, I have this routine. Um, I always say a prayer. I always, you know, express my gratitude for the animal and the opportunity to be there, to be safe, to have made a clean kill. Um, and then the work begins. Um, so you got to harvest them pretty quick if it's not the winter time. Otherwise, it's the meat can spoil. So we caped him, dressed him, you know, took him back to the truck, took the antlers with me with the head, and here we are. It's home. Hunting is incredible. Um, you're in God's country. You're in the mountains. You're in his artwork and to be in that to be a part of it is really special really special if I had any last closing remarks it would be to just get the basics down um, actually one thing I, th I left out was when you when you are getting ready to hunt something and you're sighting in your rifle or your bow, be very co um, conscientious of your first shot placement. So after everything's sighted in, where does your first shot go on a cold bore, meaning a cold barrel, you haven't shot anything out, anything out of it that day. Where does that first shot go? Whether it's an arrow, whether it's a rifle, where does that first shot go? Because in reality, you get one shot. That's it. You've got to make it count. So you guys have probably all heard the term aim small, miss small. And it's a perfect example for this. With your bow, with your rifle, aim small, miss small. Meaning, if you are at 15 yards and your groups fit inside of a coffee cup, what is that group going to look like at 25 or 30 yards, right? It's going to be a lot bigger. It's going to be um, maybe the size of a, of a bowl, like a cereal bowl. Okay, what's it going to look like at 35 yards or 40 yards? A dinner plate by that point, right? But let's flip it. What if at 15 yards, all of your arrows were touching each other or fit inside of a... Um, just good, good grouping, tight circle or tight grouping, arrows touching, maybe, you know, a little spread out, maybe a centimeter in between, something like that. What's it going to look like at, uh, look like at 30 yards? Then that group is going to open up to maybe, maybe a pop can. What's it going to look like at 40 yards? Maybe the size of a, of a coffee mug now, 
right? So that's the aim small, miss small. If you aim small and you're consistently hitting something very, very tight and very clean up close, and the theory is as you get further out, those spreads are going to start opening up a little bit. So the more consistent, the more precise, the more dialed in you are, the less chance you have of a 50-yard arrow flinging somewhere you did not want it to go. Um, I've unfortunately been a part of a couple of hunts where the shooter did not execute properly on who knows what anchor points, judgment, distance, who knows. But they unfortunately wounded two elk for me and not for me, but when I was with them and it hurt, man, like it's my least favorite part of hunting is the day after opening, you can hear the wails and the cries of the animals that were wounded and it's hard. It's sad. It's sucky. It's a part of life. It's a part of hunting, but my gosh, man, it's brutal. Um, and for him to have to live with that is really sucky. So when you are ready and your fingers on the trigger and in your crosshairs or through your peephole is an elk, a deer, a rabbit, a coyote, whatever it is, be so confident in that shot that you would take it again tomorrow and again the next day. Be so comfortable and confident in that shot, you don't have to put a second round in. You don't have to knock an, uh, notch in another arrow. Be that confident. Is it going to happen sometime when something really unfortunate happens and you don't get a good lethal shot? Yeah, it's a possibility. It's there. And that's why it's so important, guys, to make sure you aim small, miss small. You practice, practice, practice. And a really good habit to get into is when you go out to the range, just shoot one arrow at 15 yards or 20 yards. Go back the next day, shoot one at 30 yards. Go back the next day and shoot one at 40 yards. Because what you're going to see is exactly where your first arrow is going to go. It's going to give you a really good judgment of what it's going to look like in the field. So those are the fundamentals, the start-offs, the first tips and tricks I would say to when you're hunting elk or any other animal. Understand them. Understand the language, the movement, how they act, their language. I've said that a million times now, but you got to understand what they're doing, what they're saying, why they're saying it, and what to say back to them. Just get really good at knowing your animal. It's like we, me with sales. I can't go sell to, a, sell to a client if I don't understand the product, if I don't know the product, and if I don't understand that client. You, you can't sell them. It's really difficult. You might get lucky, but it's really difficult. So take take that with all take all of that. Every every last 20, 30, 40 minutes and take it with a grain of salt. Go do your own research. Go do your own fundamental checking. Go get your own baseline setup of what you think you need to start doing to hunt big oak or deer or anything else. Go do your own stuff. Go do your own research. Go find the things that work for you. But understand there are some big things that are going to play out or need to play out in order for you to make a very successful trophy hunt. But that would be my 
my best piece of advice to you, Hunter. So I hope you guys got something out of it. Um, you're going to have a lot of trials and a lot of failures as you're hunting. And that's okay. It's going to happen. You're going to miss some shots. You're going to take some shots that you regret. You're going to invite the wrong people to hunt with you. <laughs> that's a big possibility. You're going to make some mistakes in the regulation side and totally break a law or break a regulation. It's going to happen and you can own up to it or you can cover it. You're going to have some laughs. You're going to have some scrapes, some bruises, some injuries. And hopefully along the way you get to have some successes. Because ultimately that's what we want, right? To have some success. But I'm not going to lie. Some of my favorite trips ever have been when I go out and hunt with somebody. And I help them succeed. I help them get their harvest. There's been plenty of years. Um, I think it was like two years in a row. That I had opportunity after opportunity. I could have taken a deer or an elk. But I let one of my younger siblings take one. Or I had a buddy of mine never never laid eyes on a buck in his sights before. I was like, dude, let's let's take you out, man. So we were in Wolverine Canyon in Idaho. And <laughs> so I'm just remembering um, when we harvested his, his deer that time, <laughs> when we were dragging it back, we drug it through a girl's camp. And um, at the time, we didn't realize what it was. We thought it was maybe just like a regular campground. <laughs> and, um, no, we drug that dead deer right through the middle of a girl's camp. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, like groundskeepers came up to us like, you guys, what are you doing? Like, we're just trying to get our deer back out to our truck so we can get out. And he's like, you guys realize you're at a girl's camp, right? <laughs> So we had to beeline out of there and hoof it out. But when we were out hunting then, um, we we hiked all over Earth and Creation. We were finally coming up to the top of this one ridge. And we were chatting like vocally just like I am now with you guys. I wasn't whispering. He wasn't whispering. And we get to the top and I was like, Colton, shh. And right in front of us was this beautiful mule deer black antlers really pretty i was like dude that's a buck and he goes you gotta take him in you saw him first that's usually the rule he who sees it first shoots it first right but like nah dude i've i've harvested animals i've harvested bucks i'm good you take it not a second thought <laughs> pulled the trigger <laughs> super quick dropped him right there um and we did our thing and took him out but <laughs> dragging him through a girl's camp don't recommend it I don't know how much trauma we uh, instilled in someone's little girl's minds, but oh man, it was fun. I'm excited. Um, I have a little girl. She's 11 months old, going to be turning a year old this month. And I cannot wait for the day that I can take her out if she wants to. Or when I have a little boy, take him out if he wants to. And I can introduce him to that, the love of nature love of these animals, the respect for these animals. I'm excited for that. And as you guys, either new or experienced hunters, are listening, 
picture taking your own kids out. How cool is that? You get to teach them things that you learned from your dad or your grandpa and their grandpa and great-grandpas. I mean, how cool is that? That's a family legacy thing. I remember hunts with my grandpa. (laughs) Funny story. We got some depredation tags out in Wyoming for some... um, for some pronghorn the uh, land goats is what they call them speed goats <laughs> and <laughs> we had our great yeah our great grandpa out it was my stepdad's mom's dad so great grandpa anyway <laughs> we go out with him and he's stubborn and he's old he's he was 90 years old at the time or 80 something years old at the time And he had a cabinet shop that he would cut down his own timber at 80-something years old. He'd fell it himself. He'd take it back to his shop. He'd plane it, let everything dry, and then he'd make cabinets out of it. Or he'd make dressers or nightstands. Um, I actually have a dresser and a nightstand from him. Um, But (laughs) he's stubborn and he's old and doesn't want to give up any sort of element of life yet. And um, Which I don't blame him for. But we took him out with us. Um, you know, we set up camp with the trailers and whatnot. And we went out one morning. We had a, you know, couple of us take a, a antelope here or there. Another couple take one later. It was his turn. So he uh, ends up taking a shot on one, got him. And as we were driving out to go get it, it was the middle of this field. And we were passing him as he was walking. Like, Grandpa, come hop in the truck, man. We Let's go pick him up. And he goes, Son, I still got two legs. I can walk. I'll be damned if I don't. (laughs) What made it all better, though, is he always wore his pants like the flood was coming. I mean, this guy had six, eight inch, a foot from his shoe, man. Floodwaters were coming. And and this poor guy, we'd, Grandpa, the floodwaters coming? What do you mean the flood's coming? (laughs) Oh, man. Good times. Um, but I'll remember these these uh, experiences and these stories for years to come, for my whole life. Never forget them. You guys will hopefully do the same. You'll, cre- you'll create some really cool memories and some cool friendships. Because, um, I mean, it's not just hunting at the end of the day. You're bonding. You're telling stories. You're swapping jokes. You're making fun. Uh, for example, when... When I first met my wife, um, learned that they're a big hunting and fishing family. It was perfect. And I don't remember if we were engaged or if we were married. But regardless, it was my first experience going out on a hunting or fishing trip with my wife's family. Um, specifically, her brother and her dad. We uh, spent the morning driving down into this valley. Um, and then we hiked. We had eight or nine or eleven river crossings to get to where we were at. And we just walked through it all. We finally get to our camping grounds. We got set up, uh, did some fishing, caught some fish. It was a good time. Killed some rattlesnakes. Good stuff. Um, I got to try and find the picture, but both me and my brother-in-law, we were standing over top of this big rattlesnake with these boulders, <laughs> waiting, trying to get it taken care of. But um, that night, um, we were all kind of lined up, you know, sardine style, 
feet towards the entrance of the of the tent and my father-in-law had to get up and take a leak so i hear him getting up and he's zipping the tent steps out does this thing heard some light rain at the same time don't know if it's a coincidence and the next thing i know i hear him walking back i'm just about to go to sleep again and zips the tent again comes to walk in and he trips over the entrance of the tent and flattens me crushes me i mean wwe elbows flying crushed me but i had just met these like just this is our first experience together and i'm a people pleaser so i didn't say anything i didn't make a sound i don't even think i winced he also didn't make a sound he also didn't say anything (laughs) we both went back to bed like nothing happened the next morning we wake up we're warming our pants up and our socks up by the fire no one said anything yet and then he goes <laughs> he goes uh so kate i crushed you last night <laughs> oh my gosh it was so dang funny i was like yeah yeah you did man <laughs> you flattened me oh it was a good time though that same fishing trip, me and my brother-in-law, we went out fishing, and um, I don't know if I don't know if we had another guy with us, if it was just us, but maybe this was a different fishing trip, but same place. We were walking back, and we couldn't, me and my brother-in-law, we couldn't find, you know, his dad, and we couldn't find his brother-in-law, which is kind of my brother brother-in-law, it's my sister-in-law's brother husband. But anyways, had those two out, and we couldn't find him, couldn't see him fishing, couldn't hear him like freak man so we start walking back and then it pops in my head i go dude i know exactly where they're at earlier we had passed this grassy patch maybe as big as a car is and it was really really green very comforting looking anyway sure enough we go over there and those two dudes are passed out (laughs) passed out on the grass but you guys are gonna have all these little stories of your own you're gonna have these experiences of your own and they're so cool they're so cool and you'll get to tell these time and time and time again and share them with everybody um you're going to pass them down to your kids and their kids are going to pass your kids are going to pass them down to their kids i mean it's a cool thing to be in it's a very cool culture to be a part of um the unfortunate thing is we also obviously have some bad apples right that you know can rot rot the pot so we got to cut them out but um we do have unfortunate you know people that are part of that world that are in it for just the trophy um they're dishonest with it they you know bend the rules um you know they illegally hunt or illegally fish and it's sad because those few people ruin it for the rest of us which makes it really 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 sucky so we all kind of got to work together as a um, hunting enthusiast group and an outdoor group to make sure that we protect what we are able to do and to continue to do it. For those that are, how do, how do I put this? Democrat. Um, <laughs> um, I don't think.
think a lot of people know this, and I didn't even know this, but I believe it was Teddy Roosevelt was the first one to instill some sort of wildlife conservation act. He was out hunting bison, and he said that when he first started hunting bison, there was plenty of them. There's tons of them. And then over the years, it got to the point where there were a few and far in between. And he realized that they were going extinct because of how hard they were getting hunted. So he put in the Wildlife Conservation Act, um, started making the rules and regulations, and created a, created the you know Fish and, and Wildlife Services, if I remember correctly. It could be super wrong. Someone go Google it and correct me on it. But people don't realize that it's hunters, it's the outdoorsmen that are a huge contributor, if not the biggest and maybe in some cases the only contributors to wildlife conservation and um, environmental and habitat recreation and protecting. So without us, it would be presumably understood that we might not have a lot of the wildlife or some of the wildlife that we do today or some of the mountain ranges um, preserved as well as they have been or some parks that have been reserved as well as well they have been. So don't forget to go thank a fellow outdoorsman, fellow hunter and fisher and thank thank you, thank them for contributing their time and their money into preserving these things for us. Because if not, we aren't going to have them for much longer. So, you guys, I love you. I appreciate you guys listening. Um, as as always, like, comment, subscribe. Do the whole nine yards for me. It really helps me. Share the podcast. If you got any value out of this, share it to some of your other hunting buddies. If you got a kick out of it, you got a laugh out of it, share it to some people you think might think it was funny too. Pretty sure anybody that um, hears a story of them getting flattened by their you know, potential father-in-law think is going to think it's pretty funny. But that's it for me, guys. It's 1251. It's almost one o'clock in the morning and I got to get to work in the morning. But same, same uh, principle follows. If this podcast was able to help just one person or reach one person in some way, my job's done. So love you guys. And that's it.